you've had everybody record there. Anybody that's anybody. And um, Jeezy recorded there, right? Yep. Gucci records there. Yep. Have they ever been there at the same time? Yes. Like while they were at war? It was there before and after. They just didn't know. David Chance presents to you the morning meetup. Do you have an idea you need to get off the ground? Are you a small business owner looking to earn supplemental income or replace your current income? Come and join the most amazing mentorship and accountability group for entrepreneurs live with David Shands himself. That's right. This is not pre-recorded and it's not a replay. This is live every morning, Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. Eastern. In addition to the live calls, you'll also receive a weekly individual Q&A call, a private Facebook community, access to all call replays, and access to David's list of resources and contacts you need to be in an environment of success so head over to themorningmeetup.com today for your one dollar seven day trial that's right just one dollar for seven days of access to the morning meetup take massive action towards manifesting your dreams today themorningmeetup.com and three two one you're listening to the Real Social Proof Podcast with Mr. Sleepers for Suckers himself, David Shands. Let's get it. Welcome to another edition of the Social Proof Podcast where we find people who have social proof that have actually built something. And today, we've got a true legend in the building. Do you get, like, how do you feel when people call you a legend? Like, I'm adverse to titles, man. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm what my mama said. I'm no, no better than, no worse. I mean, I, I've come to accept the, the, the adjective on the front of the studio when they say the legendary, you know, mm. patchwork studios. But for me myself, I don't really be tripping on that. You know mm. what I mean? Well, we're going to dig into it, man. We got Kurt here, the, uh, the founder, owner of the legendary Patchwork Studios, man. Um, go on ahead, go. I'll let you introduce yourself, you know, then we'll jump into it. Uh, man, I'm Curtis Daniel III. Um, I'm from Carson, California, which is in Los Angeles. It's right next to Long Beach. Um, grew up in a neighborhood called The Patch, The Cabbage Patch. Um, if anybody's familiar with L.A., you know that every neighborhood belongs to someone. So our neighborhood, um, they were bloods and, um, they was, our gang was called the CPG, the Cabbage Patch Gangsters. So, uh, we wanted to, before the doll, me and Bob wanted to put in work for the neighborhood. So we, we brought our name and came up with patchwork and, uh, Oh yeah. So we was putting in work for the patch. So y'all don't know all that, but if you, if you run into somebody from Carson, they gonna tell you where the name came from. So the name of our neighborhood was the Patch. So putting in work for the Patch, and we just spelled it a little bit differently. So I always tell people all of the huh. stuff, all of the things have meaning. So like that's why I'm kind of adverse to labels. So even the names of our studios and the rooms, they all have meanings. I mean, whether people know them or not, they do have meanings. So mm-hmm. I'll give you, for instance, our small studio now is called Studio Nine Nine Five. And that's because the original building that we opened up in, the address was 995 McMillan Street. And we moved, we, we brought all the old equipment down there and I actually took the address off the building. So we called that 995. Mm. Our big studio is called Studio 9000 because of the console we put in. We put a $1.3 million console. We were the first person, first, first business in the United States to have that console and still the only one in Georgia. So we named the room Studio 9000. 
the little smaller room that Where's you. Where's the 9000 That's the big one. The, the console is the board. It's called the 9000 SSL. Oh, gotcha, so That's gotcha, why we call gotcha. it Studio 9000. And then the room that you do your voiceover work in is called Studio 1019. And nobody can figure that one out. 1019, October 19th is the day that me and Mike closed on buying the studio. Mm. So I needed a name, so I called it Studio 1019. Gotcha, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So all of it, it, it all ties back. That's why it really means something. So everything kind of means something. All right. So so walk with me how the studio came to be, like Patchwork Studios. So the studio, uh, we started off as a record label. In 1993, we started our label. And people don't really, again, it's a, it's a subtle. If you look at looked at our two logos, one was Patchwork Recordings, and then the other one was Patchwork Recording Studio. So we started off as a record label in 93. Um, our homeboy, Raz Kaz, is from Carson. He's from the Patch. Mm. And um, Bob got drafted um, by the Falcons. Mm -hmm. Bob got drafted when he was like 19. He played his first game when he was 20. And on three different occasions, Bob was the highest paid lineman in NFL history. Who is Bob? Bob Woodfield. He played for the Falcons. People nowadays know him as Sheree's ex-husband from the Housewives. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. And so Bob, is that your partner? Nah, so me and Bob went to kindergarten, elementary, junior high, and high school together. He got a football scholarship and went to Stanford, and I went to Michigan State, and we hooked back up. So me and me and Mike own the studio now. We bought it from Bob. So Bob... Hold on. Bob had the studio. Bob was the original owner, and then me and Mike bought it about 10, 11 years ago. So I've been running it since day one, but Bob mm. owned it. Him and Sheree went through a bad divorce, and it messed everything up. Gotcha. So we had to buy it to save it. So so Bob had all his money, and I thought Raz was the best rapper on earth. You young. Well, no, I can't say you young, but I a lot of Raz people. Yeah. yeah, so I still think Raz is the dopest, one of the dopest MCs. And um, Bob had bought some equipment and put it in his basement, and he was just not really using it. Mm. And I was like, you should send it to him because he's dope. And so that, that our naiveness of being – Bob, 20, I'm 19, Raz, 17 or 18. We just thought that we were going to cut a demo mm -hmm. and go out and get a record deal. So we put Raz in the studio and he cut these songs and nobody wanted to sign them. And then us being young and naive, and I ain't going to say dumb, but we just <laughs> said, well, shit, we'll just start our own record label. We didn't know what we was doing. So we we uh, we literally did what people are trying to do now. We We recorded the songs. Bob paid for it. We pressed up vinyl, we mm. pressed up CDs, we did all the artwork, and we hit the streets, man, real hard and promoted it. And uh, Raz ended up getting the buzz, and it created a bidding war with every major label. We had Rick Rubin riding through Carson to pick Raz up wow. and a Bentley back in 92. And so Raz ended up signing with Priority Records because that's that was the home of NWA, yeah. Ice Cube. And um, we did the first album with them, and... Um, the budget we ended up spending about two hundred and sixty thousand on recording studio time and production and all that stuff, mm -hmm. and then again, us being a year or two older, we was like, "Should we should just do our own studio?" Right, and right. that's how the studio started. And originally, wow. I was supposed to manage Raz, and um, I had to give people perspective at the time. He ended up signing with a company called Crowbar Management, and that's Coolio's company. Oh, word. And what I tell people, okay. Coolio is like Drake. That's how big he was. That singing that he was doing. He was the Drake. And so Raz's thing was, man, Kurt, you don't really know what you're doing. He got all these relationships. He's in the music industry. Mm -hmm. So he went over there. And that was cool. 
And really the studio was a throw to me, like we gotta find something for Curtis to do. Mm. So literally Bob, oh, yeah, Bob came and picked me up from East Lansing. He got arrested when he came and picked me up. Cause wow. he, he was driving a truck that some a dealer loaned him and didn't have any tags. He drove all the way from <laughs> picked me up, got arrested, and we drove back and um, you know, and and I started running the studio. Didn't know what I was doing. And um he gave me a book that I read and I still have, and I had to learn how to do everything. And um, one of the biggest impacts on me today is that, you know, I went out to a, um, I still, 25 years, I've never told anybody who it was, and I'm still not, cause I ain't gonna dog nobody, but I went to a studio that was open, that was real popular at the time. And I met with the manager and I was trying to get information on what to do, how to do stuff and how to run a studio. And they wouldn't even tell me the prices. Mm. And it was like that back then. It was real clicked out. And so it forced me to read and figure out how to do it. And I always tell people it left a scar on me to the point where I always said that if we ever get to the point where we're the biggest and one of the nicest studios, I was going to change that and share the information. So. Wow. To this day, if you look at a lot of studios, they look like ours because if people are building studios, they come meet with me. I show them our plans. I tell them what to do and all this stuff or whatever. So, yeah, that's how we got started, man. Yeah, you know I'm, I'm building out a, a, a I'm, podcasting studio now. And Kurt was like, yo, just just pull up, pull up. I give you everything I got. Yeah, my, my thing was, Dave, is I always thought that like at the time and what I always tell people what makes us unique is that all the studios kind of prior to us, if you look at them even now, like a lot of the major studios are affiliated or they belong to an artist, a producer. They got money from a label, a publishing company. They, you know, we we came in as a 100% commercial facility. Mm -hmm. We didn't have no artists with a budget to fill up our mm -hmm. room. We literally had to get people in there. So we've always been looked at as Atlanta studio. Mm -hmm. So at the time, you know, uh, Dallas had a studio, which was dark, but you needed to be signed to Rowdy Records to work there. Mm. Jermaine had a studio, but you needed to be signed to So So Deaf. Bobby Brown had a studio, but you couldn't get in there and if you had a relationship. So all these studios weren't available to the public. We came in and changed that game. It was like, no, mm. we were one. So we were the neutral place. So if you were, you know, Little Wayne did his first ever guest appearance on a Young Blood song. Well, he's going to feel more comfortable coming to a neutral studio. You know, as you another artist and you competing, gotcha. you ain't going to want to go. If you're trying to be better than Outkast or Dallas, you're not going to go to his studio and think he's going to get some of your sauce. So we were always Atlanta studio. So that's why even though all these people's had studios and have studios, they still work at ours because we were the neutral ground. Wow. And so I always tell people our DNA is different because we never took money. And so I've always been in a position as the manager of the studio to, you know, tell labels to kiss my butt if I wanted to. What you mean like, never took money? We never took money. We never. So a lot of these studios now, they got a, they got their funding from a record label. Right. And so it may look like it's one studio, but it's and so like just to be frank. So like there's a Drama's Nim studio, Mean Street, that's Atlantic. Records. Gotcha. That's their studio. Right, right. So that's who kind of funds stuff. So it's always somebody behind the scenes that's funding it. Mm. We got our own money. So like Outcast Studio obviously came because they were artists. They got recording budgets. Dallas had a studio because he was a producer. Right. And Jermaine got one or whatever. So all that money typically comes from a label, a publishing company, or something. We literally got the money from Bob playing football. Gotcha. So you know what I mean? So we've always been set up differently. So there's never really been a 
a dog wagon our tail. We just been independent. So like, you know, like I tell people, you gotta imagine in 93, we had our own record label. By 95, we had our own studio. Mm. We had put out three artists albums and people thought we was crazy, but that's what they trying to do now. Right. We just always been cursed with being ahead of ahead of the game. So, so Bob buys the studio. When he buys it, is there like an equal ownership share or anything like that? Or he nah, just so, so the higgle the thing is we like you. He rented a he rented a building right across the mm-hmm. street from Georgia Tech. So the mm-hmm. landlord was on the corner. We was right here and there was a third building. So we was right on this corner of 10th and Hemp Hill. Mm-hmm. Same thing you just said when we walked in here. We we went in and did all these repairs to the studios and we had a 12-month lease and we would want to buy it. And the landlord was playing games. Whenever we wanted to buy it, obviously, when we got to the end of the lease, we wanted to buy it. Right. He would make us renew the lease, and then he would want to sell it in the first month and collect. He wanted the sale price plus the 12 mm. months of the lease. So it kept going back and forth, and we could never really get it. And I remember we had an awning on the outside of our building, and we had a storm one time, and the awning came down. And um, I called him. This was probably about our third year there. And I was like, hey, man, the awning fell down. We need to get it repaired. And that's when he told me, well, I don't owe the building anymore. And I was like, what are you talking oh, about? Oh, he sold it to somebody. He sold it to Georgia Tech. Oh. And never told us. And he was kind of lying to Georgia Tech like, oh, you don't want to let these people know. They into this hip-hop stuff. They may tear the building up. So we didn't know. Wow. That's I said. I said, did you tell Bob? He said, I'm telling you now. And we had like three months to get out. And then I remember the Georgia Tech people came over and toured the place. And they met us. And they was like, you guys aren't so bad at all. And we didn't have nowhere to go. They allowed us to stay an extra three months. And Bob literally went down the street. So the old studio is probably about 400 yards from where we are. Oh, wow. And he found the building that we in now. And the only reason we got that building is because it was one person in that whole building. He was a photographer, Mike mm-hmm. Terabula. And he used to, one of his biggest clients was Coke, which is, this is a Coke town. Mm-hmm. And uh, back then... He had came up with this concept where, I don't know if you remember, they had these these uh, drink machines that looked like the sodas were popping out. They looked like they was 3D. Mm-hmm. And Coke borrowed the idea without his permission to say it nicely, and he tried to sue him. And he couldn't get an attorney in Atlanta. I remember he asked us for an attorney, and, that, wow. and, and he got blackballed. So he couldn't get any work, so he had to leave his building. So he, we had to get out, and he had to get out, and we found that building. And, mm. it, and it looked like your third-grade teacher's he had a dark room in there. The whole back was just a warehouse. I mean, we had a coffin in the basement. Mm. It was crazy. Wow. And so <laughs> we literally had to go in and gut it out and do all this stuff. And just to get our footing set, that's why we just brought all the equipment from the old studio and put it in there so we can reset. Gotcha. And then it took us a year and a half just to get the drawings of the back room. And then we had to build that out. Wow. And so, you know, now people always tell me, they was like, man, I remember you was telling me what y'all was going to do when it was going to be glass here and you was going to be able to go upstairs. He said, man, I thought you was full of shit. You know, I thought you mm. were just talking. I hear so many people talk about what they going to do, but y'all really did it. And so we, we, we I mean, literally we spent the 115,000 on just the drawings. Wow. Just the drawings. And we spent 1.3 on the console, 76,000 on the speakers, 300,000 on the outboard gear. And then we probably spent about another 1.3 just on the construction. Mm. So, so in, in terms of the business, right? So Bob, Bob has the money, right? When we started, yeah. And did he buy the building or just start leasing? No, nah, we no. Nah, so he, we we so we got burned. So obviously right? we, we weren't going to do that again. Right. So we went and got a mortgage on the building. Gotcha. We went and got a mortgage. 
Does Bob own it or is this y'all own no, it? No, it's ours. So so on there, so here's what happened, man. I'm gonna tell you what happened. So um because it was public, I'm gonna talk about it. So, you know, people that watch them shows, here's your blessing. So Bob was going through his divorce with Sheree. And they had a big ass house over on Long Island Drive. And um Bob, they came to some sort of agreement where they were going to sell the house. And this is the time when the real estate was going bad, the stock, mm-hmm. everything happened. And um, year around was the 9-11, probably, all okay, that stuff happened. Right. And so anyway, Bob gave her a whole bunch of money, over $700,000. It's in the court record, so I ain't saying mm-hmm. nothing new. To move out, go get a new place so he can fix that house up and sell it. Sheree didn't move out and kept his money, and he got pissed off. So he's like, I'm going to get her back. I'm not going to pay the mortgage. So he didn't pay the mortgage, right? Well, She just kept the brand. Well, so here's the thing. So he didn't pay the mortgage. It went into default. Now, when you in business, your personal stuff is you guarantee the business. So his personal stuff started affecting the business. And then they tried to call in one of our lines of credit. Mm. We didn't have the money to pay it. So I loaned him some money. We paid it. And then they tried to, while, they was, while we was trying to get the money to pay the line, we fell behind on the note, and then the people was trying to repossess the studio. And so me and so Mike— So almost lost patchwork. Me and Mike put up the money and bought it from him. That's how we own the place. So we don't—like I always tell people, you know, if it was my dream, then Bob would still be owning the studio. We'd be straight, and I would still be managing it. But we had to buy the studio because they was trying to take it. Like literally when—I'll give you this. I'm going to give you this as a—so say if we owe $30,000 for our monthly payment— um, and it was due on, it's December now, right? It was, it's due on January 1st. Right. And so they like, we want our money or we calling in the whole loan. Mm. And then we telling them, hey, here's a letter from the bank. Me and Mike ap- approved for the whole over $3 million that we buying it from Bob for, $3.5 million. We approved for it. Here it is. We're going to close on January 15th. Mm. They like, nah, if you don't pay this on December 31st, we taking the building. That was after they came and looked at it, and they said they saw all the stuff in there, so they wanted the asset. So wow. they tried to take it. So we had to pay the note. We like, here go the letter. You're going to get all the money. Mm-hmm. We only owe y'all X amount. We're going to give you this and be done. You can have it all on the 15th. Or you. And so they were trying to take it. And so, you know, it was, it was rough, man, but we got through it. And, um, you know, the crazy part, when we went to closing – um, Sheree's attorney had a lien on the building. And um, yeah, man. And then, what? Yeah. So then we had to get through that. Mm-hmm. Her and Bob worked that out somehow. And then when we got the building, about within eight months, we was getting sued from her attorney. Oh, so my we, we, as me, me and Mike, got sued. Bob got sued to closing. So we had cold title insurance. So the title insurance paid something. And we agreed to pay, I think, 12000 to get removed. And that let us finally be clear of that mess. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So we, you wow. know, we made it through that. And um, yeah, now it's probably about 12 years ago. Goodness yeah. gracious. All right. So, so um, you, you're building this studio. You've seen a lot in terms of um, Southern hip hop, right? And everybody that's anybody has recorded in your studio, right? Yep. What was the first time you had like a major artist where maybe you were shocked? Like, yo. Well, the the crazy part about it is, is that I always say, you know, and I don't say this just to use a name, but our very first client paid session was Outkast. That was our very first client. 
What year was this? 95. We missed the first album. They put Southern Playalistic out in 93. We opened in July 95. So we worked on um, Elevators, Me and You, Equipment, all of that stuff. We did Equipment was the album. Yeah, AT Aliens was the album. AT Aliens, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the second album. So we did Elevators and all of that and stuff. And y'all recorded that. Yeah, yeah. That was our first client. So we went from Outkast. Then, so we was doing Organized Noise. So that was Outkast. Then we went to Goody Mob. Then we went to PA. Then we went to Society of Soul. Uh, all that stuff. And then they was doing remixes for Janet Jackson. So we got to work on all of that stuff. Mm. And um, so, so that was our first client. And that was deliberate. I mean, it was a hustle. We knew... We found out that they were Rico Wade and was big Atlanta Falcons fans. Mm. And um, our studio was only about three miles away from the Georgia Dome. Right. And I found a manager, which is Dee Dee Hibbler, and I asked them, did they want to go to the game? And, of course, they said, yeah. And I was like, how many tickets? They wanted, like, 23 tickets. Yikes. So she wanted to come pick up the tickets. And I said, nah, anybody going to the game got to come to the studio and pick up their own tickets. I and love so it. they came to the studio. And because we were so close and people didn't want to pay for parking, they left some of their cars there, carpooled. I made them do a tour of the studio. Mm. And then after the game, we came back. Some of them had to use the restroom, and we literally started working the next day. Wow. That's how we got in. And, you know, the idea, my thinking behind it was at the time was that they're going to sell 3 million records, and everybody read the credits on the CDs. And if they read that they did this work at Patchwork, it's going to give us credibility, which it did. And that was our first client. So we went right downhill from there, like everybody looking like, oh, they did this here. We want this type of sound, and boom. So we started doing a lot of stuff for the face, man, everything, man. And it just, whatever, whatever, whatever decade or whatever you want to pick, we was doing them. And I always tell people, my, it's easy when people made it to kind of work with people, but I take pride in doing the first album. So, gotcha. and I'll say like the first two or three albums. So, you know. Sierra, nobody knew who Sierra was. She was a little teenager. Whole first album. Nobody knew who Chris Bridges was. That was ludicrous. Nobody knew who Lil John was. Nobody knew who Jeezy was. Nobody knew who Tip was. Nobody knew who the Young Bloods were. Wow. All these projects we we done like they first two or three albums and stuff like that. So, you know, we get a lot of clients that come in. We probably got about two or three hundred gold and platinum plaques on the wall. We probably got about another. 160 more because of the streaming that we hadn't ordered. It's so important that black voices are represented in black media for so many different reasons. And the next generation of black uh, voices and influencers from black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collections, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. And every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Smyrta to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. I listen and I'm enjoying these conversations that are for us, by us. Black representation, again, it hasn't always been uh, shared from our perspective. And black perspectives haven't been censored in the telling of America's story. 
Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Here are a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR. Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen to the Black Stories, Black Truths on NPR, wherever you get podcasts. I try to tell people, you know, they be in awe, and I'd be like, they was just like you when mm. we started working with them. We going to work with you to make you sound like that. Nobody knew who they were. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of, if you look at what we do, a lot of our marketing and promotion is geared towards independent artists. And so, because you, you know, know what they're going to become. Well, we don't, but, but that first album, everything is judged. Sonically, creatively, they got to be able to compete with Rick Ross. Yeah. They got to go from A to B. So sonically, like you're going to bring creatively what you bring. We can't control that. But sonically, we're going to make your shit hit like everybody else. And how, how does, what are the big differences between, okay, you have a good studio and you have a good studio. I mean, does it, the album come out the same or like what is it? Nah, the- we don't, we've never, we've never sold or marketed the studio. We've always sold customer service. And so, you know, we have the best equipment, period. You know what I mean? You, you're not going to tell me that I'm going to run something through my $1.3 million board and I'm going to go through all of the power that's been conditioned and treated. And then I'm going to run through about $30,000 worth of preamps and then I'm going to run it through. You said the power the was power conditioned. Yeah, so we got different. If you ever looked at the studio, we probably got about eight different power breakers. So our power comes into the building, and then our rooms are on separate power grids. And then we clean up the power and run them on UPSs, so uninterruptible power supplies. So like in here, when the air clicks on, the lights may dim. That's a brownout. We don't have no brownouts. Our power just stay the same. So if you ever come to shoot at the studio, you would notice our plugs There'll be some with triangles. That's our clean power. We don't let anybody plug any lights or anything in there because that transforms noise onto the music. So all of our equipment and computers and outboard gear and mics is on clean power. Y'all using regular power, right? We don't. You, you turn on the vacuum cleaner at your house, the power dip. When you mixing or working at your house, you think you got your record sounding great. You go away and eat a sandwich and come back and it sound different. It is different because you got noise on it and it's changing. So if you ever was at the studio, you would go in our mastering room and look at these power regulators and they just doing this. The numbers are changing like a like a lottery ball all day. That's the power changing, but our power works like this. So we dealt with everything. Like our, our, our air conditioners ain't on the roof, they on springs. So when they click on, they don't vibrate. Our air conditioner, you can't hear it like that. Mm-hmm. It falls out. We had engineers come in and design our air conditioner. They measure the heat and the air load. So it's a whole bunch of things in there that are treated and then the rooms are tuned. So what you hear is what you hear. You don't need to go check it in the car. So it's a whole bunch of things that add up to stuff or whatever. So like I said, I can give you the same mic, but we gonna have a different mic cable. And like I tell people, just think about like if you use your Mac, right? When you're just using it without no cord, when you put the cord on, what does it do? It's brighter. It's brighter. Well, we got bigger cords. We got better power. We treating so that's why I be telling people you can buy this microphone, but our microphone before it hits our recorder is going through a twenty thousand dollar vocal chain. It ain't gonna what? be the same. And then our room that you in is treated. And like I tell people, like if you don't think the room matters, 
every time you're on the phone talking to your friend and you walk in the bathroom, they say you just went in the bathroom because they can hear all the reflections of your voice. So all of that stuff adds up and it, it comes out different. So we can take, you know, I'll be thinking of verses and I'll be like, you know, I want to do one with a studio. Give us one record and give everybody the same record. <laughs> let us it. go record it, mix it, I and master it. it, and then you we gonna play it. Right. But but see the thing is, y'all not hearing it on nothing where you're gonna hear the difference. But you know, like I, I tell people, um, there's a difference and it feels different. And it's just like when somebody say, Hey man, I got a treadmill and elliptical at home, but nigga, it feel different when you go to the gym. Yeah. You work harder, you lift better, and then um, I think Banner always say there's spirits in the studio. Mm. So all of those people done left. Beyonce done left a little something. Alicia Keys done left a little something. Jay-Z, Pimp C, mm. you know what I mean? All them people that walk through them hallways have left a little bit of something. And, you know, it's something to be said to be in a space where you feel free and clear enough to express them thoughts that you're saying. I stole the KP always say that. You got to feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable. And we provide that atmosphere. You come to the studio, man, we got runners. You don't have to leave. You got knowledgeable engineers that have graduated with degrees that have went through our intern programs and people are happy to see you there. And there ain't no guesswork. You don't have to wonder if this audio is going to sound right. So you have supreme confidence when you on a stage in front of 30,000 people and you hit play, yeah. you know your shit going to sound right. As opposed wow. to if one of the homies do it at the house, it might sound good in the car, but not in the club. It might sound good on ear pods. You know what I mean? So we eliminate all of that stuff. And that comes out in the work. Mm-hmm. You hear the work. Wow. Yeah. Man, listen, so you've, you've been really in the game. First off, you've been doing this for Decades now. 25 years. We just made 25 years in July. So you learned a whole lot about sound and the differences and things of that nature, right? Yeah, man. I was just in my car the other day and I was laughing because I was hearing something. I said, you know, I can hear when the balance is off. And all my speakers was, when I looked, everything was put to the front because last time my daughter was in the back, I had cut it off. And if I get in somebody's car and it's off, <laughs> the treble. So I, I, I was laughing because I was like, it's damn. So it's spoiled for me. It's almost right. like... My friend's a chef, and he can't really go eat nowhere because right, he can right, taste right, all right. the spices. <laughs> so when I when so like it's hard for me. So when somebody send me a song, I'm not listening to the song first. I'm sonically hearing it, and if it ain't pleasing to my ear, I can't really listen to it. Mm. Like I, like it's bad. Like it hurts. So it's like man, I'd be like man, I gotta adjust this. And so the first thing, if I ever somebody asks me for something, the issue is gonna be. I think you creative, I think you dope, but sonically your record ain't hitting. Like it's, it, it sounds like somebody throwing razor blades at my ear. I got to turn the treble all the mm. way down. Your vocals are too low. The mix is whatever. And so we always preface people like, hey, man, this is where we can help. The creative stuff is on you. So gotcha. I hear stuff a little bit differently. So you are, are you still in the gang or like how does that work? Like, So I've never done music. I've never done any music. Um, now I work from 10, my hours are 10 to 2. I don't even have an office. And um, so Toya and Oz are the managers, and uh, they kind of do all the billing and stuff and stuff but, like but that. But I mean, I'm talking about like from like putting in work at the patch. Like, I was a, never that... in a gang. So in, in LA, you either going, you know, you're going to be in a gang or you're going to do music or you're going to play sports. We were the athletes. Gotcha. Raz did the music, me and Bob did the sports, and the other homies was banging. Mm-hmm. So just out of respect of your friends that have died over that stuff, 
it means a lot. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. I have a, I can't write with a blue Sharpie. Right, right. I mean, really? I got, nah, I got a bunch <laughs> of bandanas. I got green, gray, uh, black, red. I don't have no blue one. Right. I mean, I never banged, but that's my neighborhood. And, right. I, and I know a bunch of friends that, you know, that, that was into that. So it's out of respect. You know what I mean? Did you have, did you have to ever have to bring like that street mentality to the music industry? Yeah. Yeah, we used to be like that, man. I, I had to send some of my gangsters home up to priority before. What? Yeah, they had book studio time, and they didn't want to pay because we was in Atlanta. And so I called one of my Crip homeboys because we, when we played football, we played with different neighborhoods as Bloods and Crips and Essays. And I was so pissed off. I said, you can have the money. They owe me this amount of money. It's yours. He went straight up to priority to collect that money, and they wired it the next day, and I sent them his money. You know what I mean? And, and then, you know, mm. and, then, and then when we first started – yeah, we used to whoop. I ain't gonna cuss, but yeah, we if people didn't pay their studio bill, we went to see them. Really? Yeah, yeah. What? We, yeah, I would go you to the like clubs. The Atlanta shit, night, love yeah, it. Yeah, that's how in the music industry you always had to have the muscle. Because on remember we had a record label side in the studio. So if you a record right. label side and you pay somebody to do a job, a promoter, uh, a manager, and they don't do their job, you don't have any legal course per se. You gotta beat somebody's butt. <laughs> That's why everybody, so like I always tell people, when it got bad for us is when they got rid of the gangsters. They got rid of Suge Knight, mm -hmm. they got rid of Dame Dash, they kinda got rid of Master P and tried to get rid of cash money. Mm -hmm. Them was all the street dudes that made sure everybody was straight and then they started getting the little soft people in there and putting them in position and that's when this finesse started happening. But back in the days, you know, NWA and them used to tear, you see here, they tear up the offices. You know what I mean? And mm. they would just charge it back to their budget and fix it. But you're, but you're saying that was a help for the game because it kept people in line. Yeah. I mean, it was, that's when the niggas was running it. It was, you know, like I said, think of Dame Dash and what they mad at him because they was able to split his team and get Jay to come. But he all he was doing was fighting for Jay-Z. Mm -hmm. Like, when on that video, like, y'all got him wearing a Def Jam jacket. He ain't signed a Def Jam. Y'all right. just do distribution. That's the hustle. They got rid of all the aggressive people. Think about it. Should it, who You got to imagine how many artists, if you go on a, on, a, on, on online and look at Interscope or Airstore or Atlantic or Sony, they probably got 200 artists. Mm -hmm. Should Knight probably had 10. And nine of them was triple platinum. Mm. Cash Money got six, and six of them double platinum. Them niggas was hitting home runs. And you, like I keep telling people, three million times twenty dollars. That's what they were selling on CDs, right? What's what's the problem with Suge Knight? He winning. Like he he man, who got the dog pound? Rage, Snoop, mm -hmm. Daz, Corrupt, Tupac soundtracks for above the, whatever the movies he doing right and every time you put something out man you making all that money you you got to be able to work with that and then dame didn't do nothing wrong in my opinion you know what i mean those are the strong people that they don't want in arguing about what you got going on mm. you know what i mean and so it's like we so you're saying you need somebody like that on your team to enforce is it is it an enforcer well you, you need somebody looking at that paperwork and you need somebody to scare people like because right now the way people do stuff now is they have beef and be in the same club. Back then, if you you if you owed me money and I saw you, we was fighting. I don't we don't I don't fought people. I don't fought people and they come pay me the next day. Like like for real, you know what I mean? So mm. we would go out. We would uh we would go out and be looking for people. You know what I mean? And that's what if you if they didn't fear you, they wouldn't pay you. And so nowadays we had to stop. 
I, you know, one somebody pressed charges against me. That's what stopped me. Really? Yep. I had to go to what court. happened? Tell me the story. Are you able to talk about the story? Yeah, but I ain't gonna say who it is because yeah, we patched it, it up. So it, is it this was somebody a, notable? Nah, nah, nah. Um, we friends now, mm-hmm. and um, but somebody was doing something stealing from the studio, and um, a fr- and, and and somebody uh, the lady that first brought Outcast told me we was doing CD pressing. Mm-hmm. And she was like, Curtis, I called up there to put an order in to get 3,000 CDs, and your receptionist sent me to some other company. Mm. I'm like, what? And so I, you know, I'm like, I put, she was like, yeah, it's done happened a couple times, and she sending me somewhere else or whatever. So I called my old girlfriend from L.A. and asked her to call up there and try to place an order of 10,000 CDs. And the girl at the front desk sent her to this dude that used to work for me that I hooked him up with my homeboy that was doing CDs. And... um and so I confronted her and threw her out, and she left, right? And I didn't know nothing about that. And then I looked up where his office was, so I went over there like I do. And then, you know, I kind of got in, and the first dude I saw, my hands kind of got around his neck a little, <laughs> and I threw him up on the counter. You didn't even know the guy? Nah, I was looking for somebody, and I was like, when well, he started talking, I said, what? And then I threw him up on the counter and knocked over some computers, and then I went, and then I seen the girl that was working for me, and I didn't even know she was working there. Mm. And so I'm looking for the dude, and thank God he wasn't there. And so he wasn't there, and they uh, and it was my homeboy's company that I played ball with at Michigan State, and them dudes pressed charges. I went to court, and uh, I had an attorney and whatever, and I remember I went in there, and that's where I learned the lesson. And the judge bounded over from the state court to something else and was like, that's a some type of cr- felony. Mm. He said, if you, you holding somebody against their will, if you grab somebody by their belt buckle and count to three, that's holding somebody against their mm. and he sent it over. And so I was stuck. And so it took about four or five years. I never could get my court case. And then I hooked up with a friend of mine that was the second in charge of the DA, and they got it. They find, I said, look, man, I've been trying to go to court for five years. And the people came to court. That's right. when I was really surprised. <laughs> like, y'all really trying to do this or whatever? And, right. um, and so we got it thrown out, and I remember I went over to the little thing and got it off my record, and I felt like I had got my slave papers, and that was the last time I, I was able put to. Hands yeah, and now, now, now I tell you this: it was another DJ that was uh, owed me a little bit of money, and it was about the principal. He kept was like, "Man, I know other people. Oh, you tripping over this?" And I asked him. I said, "Man, come over here and talk to me. You know, let me talk to you so you can understand where I'm coming from. Like you younger, you must don't understand it. Like if you tell me I extended you credit, you said you're gonna come see me on Friday, and you don't show up and you don't call." And then I call you three other times. You keep telling me the same thing. Mm. That ain't really how I get down. So I literally, and I put this on my my, my daughter, I called my attorney and I said, what'll happen if I beat this dude up? <laughs> he was like, you can't do that no more. You know, I didn't own the studio before. I said, man, what is going to take? He's like, you can't do it. Mm. And, um, and so I sent my homeboy over there. My homeboy about 6'5". He probably weighed about 380. Mm-hmm. And I sent them up to uh, Hot 107.9. I ain't going to say the DJ. Right. And he came and saw me the next day. And I told him, I said, you don't come up here within the day, I'm going to tell this dude this his money. And he going to collect it from me. And he, he was mm-hmm. like, man, you sending Rukas up here. I said, you better bring me my money. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, that's that's like, you know, I done had run-ins with a whole bunch of people. People talk right. mess and they get disrespectful towards the staff. And I'd be like, man, I'm at the studio. Mm-hmm. Come on up here. A dude from Florida, well-known dude. He a little gangster. I guess he thought I was a buster. And I'm like, man, I'm here from 10 to 7 every day. Come on up here. Come on up here right now. 
And one of my other homeboys talked him, was like, man, Kurt, like, you know, mm-hmm. so we, we cool now. But, you know, um, that's how we roll. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, ain't, I always tell people, you know, the team take on the personality of the head coach. And mm-hmm. I've been head coaching. Bob was the GM. I've always been the head coach. And I ain't got no bitch in me. You know, I'm not I'm not one of them people, man. Like mm-hmm. I be, you know, I don't have a problem. Like if we don't get along, just stay away from me. Like yeah. we, I'm not one of them people that like like if you're gonna do something to me, we're not gonna be friends on Instagram and whatever. Mm-hmm. It's it's what it is. Just leave me alone. You know what I mean? And you in, in business, that tactic works. Business is like I tell people, I am who I am. It is what it is. We mm-hmm. we here to do a job. Right. So before that's how I like. So then now over the years, you get your you know, you get your processes better. You your price range goes out of a place where you ain't dealing with a certain amount of riffraff. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of stuff we do is label work with purchase orders and right, stuff right. like that. Now we don't sue the gang of people and they don't they don't you know, I don't got threatened from uh, I ain't going to say the artist. Right. I'm going to say the label from Sony. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody owed me some money. And I told the manager, because we have a collection agency, I said, look, man, we got a relationship. You saying this producer's supposed to pay for it. He's saying y'all supposed to pay mm-hmm. for it. It's your album. I'm trying to resolve this because you're going to get mad when these collection people start calling you. Mm-hmm. And when they start calling you don't do nothing, then we're going to sue you. And she didn't believe me. And mm-hmm. so as soon as it started going, she didn't do nothing. She didn't respond. We filed the paperwork. Then she called me. And they didn't talk to me for like a year and a half, man. We our relationship still ain't the same. This wow. a big artist. Wow. Now she back in the studio, but it messed things up. And I was like, man, it ain't me. So then here we go, right? So here go the funny parts. So I think it was about fourteen thousand dollars, right? And um, so then Sony tried to they get their attorneys on it, and they call us, me and Mike, and they like, hey, man, we got this bill here. It's fourteen thousand dollars. How about we give you guys seven fifty seven hundred and call it a day? And then um, Mike calls me. He's like, "Man, I'm about to tell this dude to go f us." I said, "Go ahead." We ain't taking that. <laughs> so then they said they threatened us. They say, "If you guys don't accept this payment, we're never gonna have another Sony artist record at your studio." We said, "We don't give a damn. We want all our money." Mm-hmm. So we got all of our money, and they can't control them artists. We've been in the game too long. Mm-hmm. They just in the office. These artists need to go where they need to be, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then so we sued them and um, whatever. We got another judgment. I ain't going to say. I think we got a judgment for about $125,000. I'm still trying to collect. Really? To yeah, man. And um, Is it looking like you're going to get it? I mean, they done start paying on it a couple times mm. and stuff. And, um, you know, it's just my character. I could have got the person probably like about two months ago. I could have mm. had them served. But... I always tell people, if I'm going to go to war, I will declare war first. Mm-hmm. And I haven't had a chance to declare war. He's texted me and asked me for something. I told him I couldn't give it to him. And I said, I need to talk to you. Yeah. And I said, and he, he tried. I said, I can't. It's not a telephone conversation. Yeah. We need to talk man to man so I can tell you what the issues are. And he would never come or whatever. And so one day he was a guest on a podcast at our studio and I knew he was coming ahead of time. Mm. And I have a private investigator that's been trying to serve him, but I felt it was it was it was female dog like to set him up without gotcha. declaring war. So I will tell you, like I'm gonna warn you, I'm gonna tell you, and I'm gonna tell you what it's gonna be mm. before I just do it. And so my other homeboy's like, I don't understand. Why you didn't say? I said because I I wouldn't mess up the vibe of this. That would be like right. David booked the studio. 
he brought this guest in there. I ain't finna tell David his business yeah. because out of respect for this person, he's one of our biggest people. Mm. And, you know, and then I ain't going to just mess up the interview right, and right, kill right. the vibe or wait till he done. Right. That would be female dog characteristics to me. So I need to have a conversation with him and say, hey, man, we at war. Declare war. Now, now it's fair. So when I do what I got to do, you can't really trip on me like that. You know mm. what I mean? Speaking of which, you've had, I mean, literally. And, and let every- me say this. So here's the difference. So Mike, my partner now, Mike used to work at the studio. So he's been owning the studio about the last 10 years with me. So our perspective is different. Mm. So my perspective is I've seen these people when they paid good and when it went bad and whatever. So I treat them accordingly. Mm. I look at the whole person and be like, man, Dave been working here for 15 years. He hit a bad spell. He ain't pay me. My partner be ready to just dog him. Mm. And I be like, nah, man, he did this much good and built up this goodwill. And out of respect for who they are in the industry, we're not going to embarrass these people. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's kind of how we roll. So we be battling with that or whatever, because I don't, mm. I don't want to do people like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and, and again, like uh, kind of touching on the I Declare War thing, you've had everybody record there. Anybody that's anybody. And um, Jeezy record there, right? Yep. Gucci records there. Yep. Have they ever been there at the same time? Yes. Like while they were at war? They was there before and after. They just didn't know. I mean, we keep that middle door closed. So we would literally have a staff meeting. I mean, it's been like that when Manny was deep beefing with Cash Money. Mm-hmm. They was in there at the same time. They just didn't know. Really? Yeah. Gucci them a couple times. We would just be like, or it might be Young Thug and somebody. And we'd literally be like, do not open that middle door. And, you know, so all of our sessions are private. Mm-hmm. So if you in a room, you don't know who on the other side. Yeah. Right. And if we know y'all got a problem, we're going to say that you got to go out the back. And then when them people over there, you got to go out this way or whatever. So, you know, um, yeah. Mm. You know what I mean? And um, I was telling people, you know, that that particular thing we've had. um, um, They tried to call us for versus to do the um, the Rick Ross and the two chains ones. Mm. Ludacris called me when he went against Nelly. We were just booked. We couldn't do them. And um, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't want to do the. What uh, would you do it in that middle area? It would have been up to them. We could have either did it in the control room or the live room. All right. And um, but then for you know this one, I did want to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I reached. How would have been? Epic. I, 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 oh, they did it. Magic I reached right. out the tip when it was tip and whatever, and then he never hit me back. And then um, so I reached out to Jeezy them, and I reached out to Gucci them, and then I reached out to Apple, and they mm-hmm. was like, "Damn, that would be epic," but we already got a committed spot or whatever. And um, we had cleared off the whole building. So we wanted mm. to do something. We would have put one in one room, one in the other, come together, whatever, you know what I mean? But, you Oh, know, you would have just, you would have separated We cleared them. the whole building. No, they would have came together, but it would have been dope for them because they used both rooms. Yeah. So they could have been in one room, was like, I did this room here, and I, it would have just been more stories. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, um, or they would have did it in one. But, um, you know, it was weird because I felt my staff hit me up the night they announced it. I woke up at four and I had a whole bunch of texts and DMs like, we need to do this here. And then I felt to myself that I did do an honest effort. I did contact yeah. the people to try to get it. And it was kind of like, I tell people, it was kind of like when your homeboy fly in town and you'd be like, hey man, if you need me to pick you up from the yeah, airport, I, sure. but you'd be hoping he don't want you to come get him. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was kind of hoping because it's a lot of technical stuff. It's right. a lot of pressure and I just wanted to enjoy it. And what I tell people is like the people on the other end of the phones and TVs that was watching it, they were so stressed out when they was up there. 
Imagine how you feel when you in the studio, when Gucci in the studio within two days after killing the dude. And we, mm. we in the studio with BMF with the pistols and the guns and the money and the 30 cars. And so it brought back a whole bunch of emotions and it was a lot of relief. And, and I didn't have the relief until Gucci put the microphone down when um, Jeezy was talking. And I said, thank God he heard him finally because he was still yelling, up, we yeah. dick your homeboy up. Right, partner. Right, we can right. do. And then he <laughs> finally heard him. And then what I tell people is the most powerful moments is when he stood up at the end and he saluted Jeezy and said, I respect you. I got no problem. And I said, damn, it's over. Yeah. And it just brought up, it was so many people that was Because you remember back then. Yeah, it was a lot of people that was calling me or texting me afterwards. They used to work at the front desk and work the night. And it was like, man, it was some stressful-ass sessions. And the engineers. And we had Gucci when Gucci was on one. Before he went to jail, you know, we've had a couple artists that the, the, the labels, they didn't, that's how they kept him out of jail, Gucci. They would book the studio for 15, 25 hours, and he would just sit in there. And that was before he kind of, he was on one. That's when he was riding around, slapping people. Do, he, if he wasn't in trouble, it's because he was in the studio. And then typically for him, you know, they would call me um, uh, probably about three, four days before he got out. And we would set up his sessions. So I would always kind of know when he was coming out. The time Tip went in, mm. you know, we, we you know provided space for him to come lay down because he was on a work permit. And so he used to ask us to open up the studio at 8 in the morning so he can leave and come lay on the couch till noon because you oh, know wow. we wouldn't start no session that early but he needed to be at a workplace so you know oh gotcha so I, when, when tip was locked up he would he would be able to do work release yeah because he would like say i'm going studio. to the studio but he ain't nobody doing no studio at eight o'clock in the morning but right. we would open it up he would lay down in the lounge sleep relax and then maybe start working in the afternoon or whatever wow. you know what i mean but those are relationships man we've been you know, we've been building and forging those for for a long time, whatever. You Give know? me some of your tightest relationships in the industry. Um, all of them. Um, I mean, I talked to to Banner, you know, a little mm -hmm. bit more and Bone Crusher. Um, I tend to kind of gear towards the older guys because mm -hmm. I like I be want to make sure that we respect them. Yeah. Um, um, what's his name? Um, FaceTime Scarface about three weeks ago, and I damn sure didn't even know if Scarface remembered my name. And he really, really was like, Kurt, man, this my y'all have my all time favorites. He said, Get Kurt the phone, man. I done been all over the world, man. I ain't just saying this now, man. I tell you, man, that's the best studio in the world. I love coming in there. My music come out of there. I tell everybody or whatever. And then, you know, my I will say some of my favorite sessions because I'm from LA. Mm -hmm. Is you know my I must say my one of my favorites. We did Dre for a week. Really? Yeah. He came in and um, he came. I remember he came in on a Sunday. Mm. And the biggest problem we had is he wanted two fifths of Tangeray, and Atlanta was a dry town on Sundays. You couldn't buy liquor. Oh yeah, it ju it just yeah, turned. So man, I had to call. I had to call the dude that managed Jeezy now is Solomon. He was running Justin's. So we yeah. went to Justin's and got two big ass fifths of Tangeray, and then we replaced them on Monday. And we always used to work together like that. So Solomon used to do mm. stuff. We was kind of like our kinship was we working for these stars or famous people, but we the ones that's doing the work. So if I needed something, Solomon, man, I need some jerk wings. They wouldn't do takeout orders. We would get them. He catered mm -hmm. our 10-year anniversary. Then um, then we did um, Farrakhan, was there for a week. That was a trip because he played a violin. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Farrakhan recorded at I said like this. I said like this for two days. I, didn't, I sat literally next to him. And um, 
you know, yeah, he played a violin. He did an album. It's like a box set. It came out like a year and a half ago. We did his parts and stuff at the studio. Really? So we got like Stephanie Mills, Snoop Dogg, Rick Ross. He got an album, and he playing the violin. So we sitting in there. Before they come, you know, the brothers come. Yeah. They sweep your building and do all that stuff. Sure. And, and then I remember uh, Giovanni from Antico. He called, he's like, man, you got the fucking Secret Service over there? Who's in the studio this day? I've never seen no rappers trail like that. I said, that's Farrakhan. So they come in, and I remember it was it was a trip because he was talking. We was talking, and he was telling me all kinds of stuff. He was telling me Michael Jackson stories, Quincy Jones. He was telling mm. me stories from the 70s on, and then he was like, you need to have a kid. I didn't have no kid at the time. People like you need to have more than one kid. When I come back, you better be done had three kids. So anyway, he talking, and he say he thirsty. So we bring him some water. The brothers picked that water up and moved it out, went to the cooler, gave him his water. I said, ain't playing. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah they ain't playing. Wow. They, they travel with his food, water. They ain't drinking none of your water. I don't care if it's in a bottle or not. They ain't playing. Yeah. Mm. yeah, so Farrakhan and then me personally, when I was in high school, the way I used to relax, I used to listen. I had a cassette. I used to listen to Regina Bell. Mm. Make it like it was. It would play through. I remember I popped my tape. So we had dear Regina about four or five times, and I was too, I had too much respect to speak to. I was scared of Regina Bell. Really? Man, I wasn't, man, I was scared. Regina Bell was like Sade to me. You just saw Beyonce's and Jay-Z's. Look, so it took about the sixth time she was in the office paying, and I just went in and told the story. I said, Miss Regina, how you doing? I'm Curtis. I'm one of the owners of the studio. She's like, oh, hey, I done been here a bunch of times. I never met you. I said, yeah, I done seen you. I was scared to talk to you. Why? I said, I told her. She hugged me. And so then we became, we cool. I got her number on the phone. I met her Mm -hmm. daughter and she works there. So, right, that was that. Mm -hmm. Now, I was married before my wife passed. And when we got married, we got married to Patti LaBelle songs. Mm -hmm. When she was at the funeral, I had Nikki Gilbert from Brownstone sing two Patti LaBelle songs. I love Patti LaBelle. Love and need and want you. And if only you knew. Mm -hmm. Patti LaBelle come to the studio. Oh, now, Starstruck? No, if it wasn't for Regina Bell, I would have been scared to talk to Patty because Regina was so nice. I went in there, introduced myself to Patty, told her about my wife. She teared up, gave me a hug, and she said, thank God for my sister, Regina, because you would have been scared mm. to talk to me, and I needed to hear this story. We took a picture. And, uh, wow. Yeah, and then, you know, and then I was interested in hearing... I kind of didn't believe E-40 rap like that. I'm like, nigga, I want to see this. <laughs> he was in there laying on his stomach, writing his rhyme. He stood up. And then, and then the other one was, I was like, he ain't doing this. Twister can't rap like that. Right. He came in the studio for a few, about a week or two. And I said, I'm going in this room to see, because I don't be right. in the room. Mm. And they did it. You know what I mean? He did it. And he then just, I wanted to hear... Do we, do we go straight through it? Do yeah. we patch in? Or? That nigga be rapping it. I mean, it ain't even the patching. It's the fact that he... Do, E-40 rapped his straight through. Mm. And go back to his ad-libs. And then I wanted to hear... I didn't believe Scarface's voice sounded like that. <laughs> like, you know, I thought they was putting some effect on it. Right. But literally when he... he t- and then I thought he was really serious. And that nigga joked the whole time. He be right. bagging on you. Right. And so, like, my perception is... He just, you know, but he be telling jokes the whole time. And so he went in and when he started rapping, he sounded like Scar. When he talking to you, he bragged. He sounded like Scarface with no mm. effects. And I was just like, man, that was dope. And, you know, and, and when Dre was here, I will say that Atlanta, 
showed him the utmost respect. Mm -hmm. Everybody in their mama came to the store. I came home. I, I came bet. home. It's from Jermaine to Pre, the business, every producer. And what they was telling me is what, so Dre, they had every room booked. They had mm -hmm. small room, the little room, really? the big room. They blocked off the master room and the production room. And all these different producers was working on beats. And Dre would go in there and he was like, instead of he and being critical, he would give them stuff what they needed to add to their music and make it better. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you one story about Dre. That Hold was on. Like, so he... His team booked out every studio. Yeah, and then all these different producers from Atlanta was in there making beats in all these different rooms. For him? Yeah, if you look on the internet, there's a video of him and Tip. That's in the studio. Tip is rapping and Dre in there. It's in black and white. It looked epic. And he's he's walking around to these like younger producers like, yeah, yo, just he, fix this. Yeah, and yeah. He was, he, was, he was looking for production for the Detox album. Mm -hmm. And then, so, so here's the thing. So Dre, there are certain people in the music industry where... Back in the days, they didn't want Puffy them in their studios and they didn't want Wu-Tang because they would be known to have a bunch of people and they would blow your speakers. Mm. They say Dre can't hear. He likes stuff so loud. And so we knew this and we like, we ain't blowing our speakers. So we go in there, there's a way on the SSL, the knob on the SSL, SSL? the board, the console, okay, that $1.3 million console. It got a knob, normally stuff go up to 11, the SSL say 11, everything mm. go to 10, so it say 11. But the engineers could put a gate on the front of it that'll lower it down. So even though you turn it all the way up, it ain't really going all the way up. Mm. So we like, we ready for this food. Dre come in. He like, put this on, play it. So he play it. It ain't as loud. It ain't blowing the speakers. He went over there, do, 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 and just ungated. He said, <laughs> he looked at the, he said, boy, I've been working on these things since I was 16. And that was it. He just turned it up. And I said, he said, I know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? He, he bypassed it. You know what I mean? Yeah, he know what he's doing. Mm, yeah. Yo, that's crazy. So, what if, did you meet Jay Z? That was funny. What was that like? Jay Z was there because he was doing a concert at Phillips. So, Jeezy had a session and he came over to holler at Jeezy. And Jeezy asked me to come to the room to meet him. And so, I'm sitting there thinking, like, okay, he's famous. Everybody know him. I'm thinking to myself, how is he going to introduce himself? Is he going to say his name is Sean, Jay, Jigga, whatever, right? So Jeezy's late. I remember they was he was sitting on the edge of the uh, producer's desk. I walk in, I dap him up. He's like, oh, my God, Kurt, he on the studio. I did all this, da, da, da. So he go like this. He dabbed me up. I'm like, Kurt. And what do you think he said? I'm Jay? No. What did he say? One more guess. Uh, Ho? That's what he oh, said. Right. I said, man, get your ass out. I walked out. I said, I know this. And he didn't just, he was like, he went like this. He was like, Ho. I said, get out of here, man. That's what I thought. I didn't say nothing to myself. But when I left the room, I said, I know this nigga didn't say his name is Ho. I thought he was going to say Sean. Like, right. yeah, man, it was like, Ho. Then when Beyonce came, I was I didn't go in the room. Right. I didn't go in nope. the room with Alicia Keys. Nope, nope. I mean, it's like a twofold thing where sometimes it's like, you know, it's almost like I think of like when you go to a restaurant and sometimes the owner come out or the chef mm -hmm. come to your table some people want that and some people don't. Right. Some people offended when the chef don't come out and some people be like, what you out here for? Now, as the chef or the owner, sometimes when you come out, then they start asking you for everything. They want to bypass the front mm. desk, the engineers and whatever, mm. and it's directly to you. Right. And so sometimes I'd be like, man, I want to go in there and introduce myself, but then it's easier when it just go through the system. You yeah, know, like, so sure. we, I'll tell you, I give you our... Uh, when we did Mariah Carey. Oh. So Mariah, they was worried. This was she on Def Jam, and they was having a hard time getting the album out of her. Mm -hmm. 
And I always tell people one of the year was this how, how probably, about, probably about six years ago or something. Okay, gotcha. And gotcha. I'll say that uh, one of the mistakes that younger people artists make, they always be bragging that when they get a budget, they be bragging that they didn't spend a lot of their budget. I didn't use a lot of the money. And I'd be like, use a fool because if you ain't into them a whole bunch of money, they'll just close you out and drop you. Now, when, mm. you, when you sign a Janet Jackson for millions of dollars or Mariah Carey for millions of dollars, you're going to wait 20 years to get that album because that's how you get your money back, right? Mm. So these young dudes are signed with Def Jam, have a $300,000 budget, and be trying not to spend their money. They running around trying to cheap everybody. Kirk, can you give me a deal? These producers are going to produce it for cheaper. They want to get everything for the low. And then they want to be like, I turned in my album. I only spent 80000 The label be like, drop him. And they never put the album out. They'll eat wow. that 80. Now, if you in them for a million or half a million, right, and they gonna, they need to get their money back, yeah. and I'll be trying to teach people that. So Mariah's in them. You know, she ain't putting mm. no album out. Man, they book. They don't want nobody. Tell the receptionist to take the day off. <laughs> we booking the mastering room, the production room. We don't want your video people there, and we're going to bring our own engineers. And mm. they book it for a week, 15-hour lockouts every day. They have Randy is there from American Idol. Okay. Yeah, what up, dude? Yeah. Randy there. Uh, Jam is there from Ter- Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Okay, okay. And Neil, uh, one other dude. They make us rent. We had to rent this piano, a $200,000 piano. We rented it. They put it in the live room. We had to pay somebody to come tune it. They give us like a two-page writer of all this stuff that we be. And then the day before she start, the executives from Def Jam flying and they want to meet with me to go over the rider to mm. make sure everything's straight. Right. So we going through all this stuff, right? Flowers, candy, water, whatever. And then I remember I was at home and they, they was like, we can't find this champagne downtown. And I'm like, mm. well, it's a total wine over here. What the hell is it? I'll go get it. Text it to me. They text it to me and I had to buy a case and it was like $2,600. I was hurt. I said, mm. I said, what kind of wine is she drinking? So we get it. And then, you know, we go through the first day and I remember the A&R dude wanted to meet with me the next day. And uh, so I'm like, man, I hope we killed it. Where So he's like, man, can I meet with you? I want to talk to you about the session. Da, da, da. Mm. I'm like, what's up? He's like, man, you know, we uh, we needed some little flute champagne glasses and you guys didn't have them. And I said, was it on the rider? He's like, no, but Mariah asked for it in the middle of the night. And I said, well, I said, then what happened? He said, your guys went and got it. I said, okay. Man, I'm like, was everything else okay? He was like, Man, the vending machine took my dollar. I said, get your ass out of my office. I said, man, that's all. I literally, I said, that's all. I said, so all of that two pages, the $200,000 piano, the flowers, the pedals, everything, the water, the wine, you in here talking about the vending machine took your dollar? I said, we did our job. And I said, we, we killed it. Now, the, the, the crazy part about those sessions, Mariah wouldn't show up till after midnight. Mm. So all three of them sitting in the studio, 12 hours, Randy, Jam, everybody, we just, everybody, we just sitting there. They paying for the whole building and she don't, sh- now to, to her credit, what I tell people, she wouldn't leave till 10 o'clock, but they would mm. have a studio from noon until the next day. And, you know, Why whatever. were they doing sitting there? What are they Because they didn't know when she want to come. They had to be ready. They just got to be ready. Yeah. And they never touched that piano. Never. They never even touched never. the piano. And I remember my aunt, they was like, man, she came in like Mariah. Like, they like, I don't even know if her feet touched the ground. <laughs> she had the hair. She had, like, we couldn't talk to her. She had an assistant. We did it, you know what I mean? And um, so we did them, I think we did a week and a half, and uh, we hit it. I, we can't, mm. She never complained. And I always tell people, 
That's why I like picky people. I like doing the Wu-Tang sessions. I like doing the bad boy sessions. I like doing the Braxton sessions. I like doing the hardest people to deal with because most of the time, them people are going to tell you what they want, mm. and all you got to do is do it. Yeah. It's like going out of town, and like I tell people, when you go out of town, that hotel is going to make or break your trip. Yeah. When you stick that key in there, you be like, this shit better be right. Yeah. You better have my extra pillows that mm -hmm. I asked for. And when you open the door, if your room is straight, man, you can deal with everything else. But if, if they asked you to do something, like you'd be like, I got a kid, and I need a high seat, and they ain't in there. You got to call, and you got to wait. It mm -hmm. just set in. So we try to be as prepared as possible, and we love the picky people. Because the picky wow. people are going to tell you everything that they want. And they're going to be happy because most people just mess up and don't do it. Right. Monica going to tell you, I want some throat coat, and I don't want no cold air in the vocal booth. And I want this type of water, and I want this many. And then you just do it. R. Kelly going to tell you, I need this, I need that, I want this, I want this, I want this, I don't want this. And you just do it. Mm. You know what I mean? And I, I remember one time with, uh, people be so mad, but we was doing R. Kelly and they try to tell, you know, they'll tell you, hey, he has a food budget. Most artists, they'll be like, the Young Bloods get $100. Mm -hmm. Beyonce is unlimited. Like, <laughs> and I, I'm going to tell you this. I always say I can tell when an artist going to do good by how quick we going to get paid. When we did Beyonce, they FedEx the check the next day. Mm. Some of these other artists, we'd be waiting $30, $45. And I'd be like, man, that's going to be a problem because if they ain't paying us on time, they probably ain't paying the promotion persons on time, the wow. DJs on Beyonce. They was asking me for the invoice, man. You know what I mean? And so they FedExed it. They paid to pay me. They FedExed that check. And um, mm. so with the R. Kelly stuff, we we working and um, they like, yeah, we're going to try to, you know, his food budget be about $300 a day. You know, that's what they say. Mm. Man, R. Kelly ordered $400 for lunch, $500 for dinner. <laughs> and so I called the label and be like, hey, and they like, well, what are we going to do? Yeah, you'll get him whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And they literally, that's how we would roll. And they would pay his stuff. They generate so much money, and it's like, you know, they're trying to get them in the studio. Mm -hmm. They want them to be comfortable, and they need them to be creative and get them records out. So mm -hmm. when we doing Mariah, hey, dude, she got a food budget, get whatever she want. I'm like, damn, she want flowers, Snickers, <laughs> get it. We'll pay right. for it, no problem, Curtis. Right. R. Kelly, no. Rapper, yeah, they got $75, $75, and you better not go over or they don't have a food budget. Right, And that's right. one of the things, too, that we provide. You know, mm -hmm. we, we've been around long enough that, like, you know, and they, they're friends in the industry at these labels. And so, you know, if we doing R. Kelly, you know, R. Kelly, he, he's done our longest sessions. He's been in there 54 hours straight. Mm. He, he works for, he might book 30 days. And so the label would be like, well, Curtis, you know, if you need us to pay you after the first week, well, why not? We just hold the bill. Yeah. We hold it for 30 days. We add them up, all that food. We mm. prepay for it, and then we send it in. And, you know, we able to do that. And um, I always tell you now, I can tell these admin people at these labels don't have as many assistants, and it's not as much of them, so they're a little bit overworked. And I think one of the things that we give them is peace of mind. So if they like, you know, we might get a text in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock or 10 o'clock saying, hey, uh, Young Thug or Young Gunner or what's the name want to get in the studio? Do y'all have a room in the engineer? They know they can go to sleep. Whereas if you go to another studio, you might get a call at 2 o'clock in the morning from that artist like, who the hell is this and this and they right, messed. Right, right. So we get a lot of work. They, the labels just be like, look, man, we need it's Sunday. It's, it's Christmas. We did Dre. 
that give me the green light with John Legend. Oh, word. We recorded Dre's verse on Christmas because I remember we was closed. But we we try to say we closed, but we available if somebody want to work. And then I remember KP was like, man, Kurt, I know you're going to kill me Dre in town for the holidays. He want to come in and work. Shit, let's go. We went in that big room. Mm. Andre spit his verse. And, um, you know, and so the labels are closed. But we have a relationship. Hey, Curtis, I'm authorizing this session. When we come back after the holidays, we'll go ahead and PO it and boom, and we can go. But if you're trying to go to another studio or somebody you don't have that relationship, or the studio need the money. Like sometimes you work with these contractors on your house and they want to deposit up front and they want their money to go get the equipment. We ain't really like that, man. We, right. we, we, can, we in a position where we can do the work and be professional, take a purchase order, bill it, give you 30 days, mm. and, and you know, and do stuff like that or whatever. There's a personal thing for me. Were you, uh, were you, and did they come record when like the, the state property, Beanie Siegel days, like the Young Guns and all that kind of stuff? I don't think we did a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I know we did Beanie because I think Beanie was on a remix with somebody, mm. but we didn't do a lot of, uh, we did I think the only thing I really, we got a Jay-Z plaque because we did Pimp C's verse on Big Pimpin'. Mm. And so they we did that there. And then I don't know that we worked on anything else. We did some, well, you know what, we need plaques. I think we worked on the last two Kanye stuff. Really? Yeah, I, actually, because Kelly Price. Did Kanye come in? He's been there. He used to be there. The crazy part, and I, I, sh- I shouldn't have gave him their stuff because they probably lost it, but... When he was doing the stuff, um, he did a song that came out on Tip's album. I think it was called I'm Just Doing My Job. Mm. But at that time, he was in the studio for about two weeks, and they did about eight records. Mm. And I used to always ask, Jason, man, why are y'all going to? And, and I kept their stuff, and I was like, you need to take this. But they did a lot of records. But, yeah, he's been there. And then um, how we did your stuff to get your rig, yeah. at the one point he didn't want to go on studio, so he was recording in his hotel. So we put a rig together and rented it to him with some mics. Gotcha. And they did that. But the last album, I think uh, Kelly Price, whatever song she sang on that Pablo album or whatever, mm-hmm. we worked on that. We need to get a plaque. Right. And I was telling my homeboy, because we there's some pictures Mark Pitts posted, and I always know we did it. We did run it and them remixes for Chris Brown before mm-hmm. he was Chris Brown. Mm-hmm. And we don't have a plaque. And it's, and I, what I was telling him, I said, he was working with Sean Garrett, so the session report may say Sean Garrett. Mm-hmm. I'm like, but we worked on them albums. We worked right, on right. the first album and whatever. So... It's a lot of stuff that we, you know, that, that we've done. I didn't even know the person she said was in the studio, Kid Cudi. I mean, mm-hmm. it'd be so many people because I leave now at two. Right. Most of the bigger artists come overnight. And uh, mm-hmm. my biggest fear, man, I'd be on Instagram and I'd be, I probably do it like once every six months because I'd be so scared to look. You know, you can hit places. Right. And I put I'll in password <laughs> and I hear recent. Man, I be seeing girls, and it just be like, I be like, man, oh, my God. You right. know what I mean? And so it's weird, man. Yo, how was – so you recorded Wu-Tang? Yeah, we did. We did Raycon. I know we worked on Raekwon's and Mobilarity. Um, Word. We got a plaque for that. And then um, we didn't work on their first album, but we worked with different ones of them. What was it like the having them all – was they it's all cool. in that thing? Nah, because, well, my homeboy – before their first album came out, my homeboy Jason Staten, he's from Lansing, he used to do national street promotions. Mm-hmm. And he brought them to Michigan State. And we, we, me and him was driving around the Midwest, and I remember everybody, who are these karate dudes and whatever. So we, and, and that was, uh, um, Raekwon tried to beat up one of the dudes because he, he, uh, he, he ordered his pizza wrong. I remember that. No way. What band. happened? Yeah, he was, he was like, you trying to play me, son? They ordered the wrong <laughs> pizza. They might have put pepperoni on it, and he was trying to whoop the dudes, but... 
But it, but by the time you know we came to the studio, it's like a mutual respect. Like mm-hmm. I tell people, when you walk into a place and you see cigarette ashes and stuff all over, then you you act accordingly. Mm-hmm. When you walk into a place and it's nice and people are respectful, then you kind of give what you get. So we didn't have we ain't we. You got to remember, a lot of times it wasn't a lot of people, a lot of black people on the technical side that owned studios. Mm-hmm. So these people were going in rock studios and country studios, and they weren't comfortable with all them people around. Right. They thought our kicks was too loud and the music was too loud and it was hitting too hard. But we like, come on in, man. We ain't tripping. Turn it up. Crank it up. Uh, y'all smoke. We got a smoking room. Go yeah. ahead. Oh, y'all got 30 people? No problem. We got a lounge and whatever. So that's, that's why I keep saying it's weird that if you look at, if you ever had an opportunity to look at recording studios before we opened in 95, you couldn't do all the stuff. We was the first studio to do listening parties. Mm. We're the first studio to, we changed it to do birthday parties to turn into like an event facility, podcasts. We was the first people to start paying engineers and put them on the payroll and they worked for the studio before they were independent clients. Mm. You couldn't get into a commercial studio and commercial studios were stale. Mm. They were all, like the guy that designed ours, we, we, uh, we barely picked him. He saved, he got that job. Because when all his work, it looked like it was white and sterile. Mm-hmm. And it was squares, and they looked like a hospital. And I remember it was, I called him to tell him that we ain't going with him. He was like, well, Curtis, you know, those are all the designs that our clients pick. We're really looking forward to working with you and Bob because we know you guys are going to allow us to do some cool stuff. Mm-hmm. We got all of this stuff planned out with curves and different angles, mm-hmm. and that's what sold them. And we nice. got them, and we we went crazy. We, wow. we, we freaked it. And then... Um, so all of this stuff that that's going on, man, they they weren't you weren't able. You think you was able to get in Bobby Brown studio mm-hmm. and throw a listening party right, or do a right. podcast or have a, a list, you know, a meet and greet? You couldn't go into mains. Not we changed all of that stuff, man. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'll never really pound on our chest, but I just tell people is you go back and look at studios. Studios weren't open to the public. Yeah, you had to be in the music industry to get in them studios, man. And we changed mm-hmm. that. So now I look at all these, the whole model is the model that we put in place. Hiring the engineers, good staff, multiple rooms, uh, multi-purpose, being able to do video, audio, parties, listening parties. We, we did all, the first one, I'm telling you a lot of stuff, you cut this. The first thing, this is what, I'm gonna tell you this story, this almost broke me. Mm. We, one of my girls that worked at the front, her name was Frances, she came up with this concept, she called it the producer's ball. The producer's ball. Yep. And okay. we like, we're going to have a bunch of different producers that's up and coming, come in and play some of their stuff. This is up and coming. So we had Polo to Don. Y'all didn't really, you know. Up we, coming. We had Justice League. We had Drummer Boy. Timberland came through, which was a problem. And um, Why was it a problem? Because it was too big. So, and then um, Jazzy Faye, a uh, bunch of people, right? This was early when they career. And so prior to that, the week before, we did our re-grand opening where we opened the big room in our 10-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. So I had like, you know, four police officers from Atlanta outside. I had valet and I had security in. We was prepared for it. I knew we was going to have like three, 400 people. It wasn't right. no problem. This party, I just thought, we just doing a producer's ball. It ain't going to be no big deal. A few people going to come. And I didn't have any police or security. And I lost control of the room. It was probably about three, four hundred people in the studio, in the parking lot and everything. Mm. And I couldn't control it. And they wouldn't listen to me. And I remember. And so we had these producers playing stuff. And then Timberland's 
he was his assistant came in there and he was in New York. He was just rude. Man, let me play this. Timbo on the phone. Let me play this track. I'm like, you ain't part of the program. And I couldn't control it. I literally couldn't get to the other side of the room to stop nobody from mm. doing nothing. And um, we it lost control. And, and, and so for a whole year, I wouldn't do another listening party. And mind you, we had did Jeezy's listening party, Ludacris, Akon, mm. Rick Ross. And I was so scarred up. And we, we had what the problem was, uh, they blocked the dumpster off and all that food from the grand opening. We didn't schedule nobody to pick it up and mm. they wouldn't come get it. So by the time they would come, we had trash bags everywhere. It was maggots all over the place. It was so bad, the homeless dude wouldn't take $100 to clean it up. And so when we did that, I, it scarred me up, and I was like, I ain't never doing that again. I'm just going. We can just collect our money with two or three people here, mm. and then people kept calling me, and then I said, you know what? I need to put together a package that if I do it, then I won't be mad. So yeah. that's why our listening parties cost about fifty five hundred dollars. I make people pay for valet. Mm. You don't have an option. Right. You're gonna pay for four Atlanta police officers, three security. You're gonna pay to get my carpet clean. Mm. You're gonna pay the maid to come in and clean up that night, and you're gonna pay me for an extra dumpster fee. And I'm gonna make you rent speakers so you don't blow mine out to put it in mm. front of the room. So it's like a so everybody be when we do them. That's why we only do the big ones because it's like fifty five hundred dollars, and they come at me like. You know, Rick Ross would be like, well, we already got our security. I said, he your security. He ain't going to listen to me. <laughs> right, right, right. We hiring whatever. And, you know, and then I remember we did one of the ones I tried to be cool with Rich Homie Quan, And he was like, we're going to do one. And I promise it won't be no more than 10 people. And I'm like, I'm telling you, man, we ain't letting them people in. Man, it got so bad that people was hopping the fence. And uh, his parent, he came with five people. So his parents couldn't get in. And it was a headache. And, uh, and I was like, I'll never bend again. You know, because people want to, they want to tell you that they ain't going to do all this stuff, but yeah. they don't, they can't control it. And then, sure. I mean, you know, one of the cool ones, the biggest, we did R. Kelly's, but they were so professional because mm. he's like, they gave us a guest list and it was like, if they ain't on the guest list, we don't. So we got the, mm. we was like, you can't come in. And uh, we did that one or whatever. But, you know, I learned a lesson that producer's ball. But again, nobody was in studios. You couldn't come. You didn't, you didn't have events at studios, right, man. Right. You couldn't go tours. I'm a studio owner. And they wouldn't even show me their studio and show me the rates back when mm. we started in 95. Right. So all of this stuff that you see now, this new model is what we put in place. And like I said, a lot of people, everybody, Coach is Coach got, Coach got K got 50,000 square feet right now. Mm. And he's trying to do a studio and he calls me about the architect and who designing it. And so I tell him some stuff. And then he brings his architect to the studio mm -hmm. to look around. I show him the stuff and all this stuff. And I make myself available. Yeah. Stone them, with the Akon them, every different studio that you see. It's to the point now where, like, a lot of people, when they see reality shows, they'll call me and be like, they in our studio. Yeah. And I would be like, every studio ain't ours. But it's even now when I look at stuff. I'd be like, is that our studio? Because they copied our diffuser. Right. They copied our panels. They copied our ceiling. So a lot of people come in and bring their architect and be like, I want you to build this room. All right, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you can keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headache, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
with NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. It just makes sense. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit from NetSuite? I know you see it. Listen to me. If you have everything scattered in business, you cannot grow. And everything is more expensive when you have more and more processes layered on top of each other, more and more softwares. You got to get out of that. And it, it will improve efficiency and cut costs. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com slash social proof. That's NetSuite.com slash social proof. NetSuite.com slash social proof. I'm doing the B room. And so when uh, Jeff and at DTP last year around this time, I was going to their studio because Jeff wanted to build out their rooms. Mm -hmm. And then when Jason Jeter's doing his place, I go out to his place. We went to India's house, NDRE, Word. and helped design her stuff. Her dad built it. We helped design it. We went out to Montel Jordan's church. They didn't hire us, but they consulted, and then they went with somebody else. So we be out in all these different places. Wow. Uh, Jason just did a retreat at a cabin two weeks ago, and we sent two engineers out. We Luther built his rig, designed right. it. Shout out to Luther, Took man. the mics, and we guy. went out to the camp, staffed it, and, and did it for a week, and they never had no problems. So we be doing all this different stuff, and my, my philosophy is just different. I'd be like, if Atlanta has multiple great rooms, it makes Atlanta better. It doesn't make sense to have one good room and all of this BS. So I always try to reach out to people that's doing home studios and doing stuff that need help because if, if we can help, we, we want to help. Yeah, you know what I mean? Kirk, what I appreciate you uh, coming through, man. This is like, it was like a, a lesson in Atlanta history. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it, it is a staple in Atlanta. Like, you guys are stamped in Atlanta history because, and I'm, I'm realizing that it's a mix of, one, you know what you're doing sonically. Like, you just, like, who would think that you're going to treat the electricity? Or who would think... Like when we went to the studio, um, you said you had like rubber on top of this the so, roof. Yeah, to kill the rain. To kill the rain. Like you're thinking past, and then you know we're 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 going through. Um, all right, making sure there's no, there's not it's not a square room. Right. And it has to be all like you know everything, uh, everything, yeah. but I, almost you, everything you know about what? sound. I, I, you know what? I do want to say this too. So like what I remember. Um, I think I was watching them. I'm competitive. So when I when I was watching them verses, it was like a long time ago. And I was like, you know what? I'm about to get my 20 songs ready in case another studio want to change. <laughs> Let's go. Right? right? So here's here was the problem, Dave. So I, saw, I got my little leather binder and I started writing down songs that I know we did. I'm like, we did Ether. Nas did his verse Ether there. That ain't Nas did his Ether yeah. verse yeah. at Patchwork? Yeah, we did the pig pimping. Were you, ever, were you in the room? Were you in that I, room? He left his rhyme book. And I got it, and my and I kept it in the office, and I was reading it, and he was like writing. It looked like he was writing a movie. It was real vivid, like his rhyme, the intro, the sun goes down, whatever. So I'm like, I know what this is. I put it in my office. I keep it for years, and Mike threw it away. No. And then um, so like okay, so right, so I'm mad, you know. And um, last year, KRS One came up there, and he left his rhyme book. 
I said, what? And they called me. I said, put it in the office. I came up there the next day. I seen Rapture step into. This was last year. I seen old Ron. Oh, my goodness. I say, I said, let me call him and tell him he left this. And he was yeah. like, I'm coming back up there today. And I gave it back to him. And um, mm. but I be wanting to keep that stuff, man. Nas's you know, rhyme book. He bro. left it when he wrote Ether. He when he wrote Ether. Yeah, yeah. And um, so then, so look, so I'm going through songs, right? I'm like, you know, okay, Jeezy stuff. But then, so then I said, that's too much. 25 years, I can't pick 20 songs. So then I said, well, let me go to, cause, cause here's the problem is that when you're doing these whole albums, okay, so I'm gonna ask you, which Outkast song you gonna pick? Which Goody Mob? Yeah. Which Jeezy? Which Tip? You doing three, four albums? Yeah. Which Sierra? Which yeah. Monica? Which TLC? Which Waka? Which whoever? Right. So I'm going. So I said, you know what? I'm gonna knock this down. Let me get 20 artists. I start right. So I, out of respect, I said, I'm gonna start in Atlanta. But we done did records for yeah. Snoop, you know, all over the place, you know. So I start writing down artists. And I said, fuck it, I can't even do it because mm. I couldn't narrow it down to 20 artists because. Then I would have to go 20 You couldn't artists. even narrow down to 20 no, artists. because then I would go, like, if I'm looking at Sierra album, what am I going to take? Okay, everybody, the commercial is goodies, but I like that ooh record that Ludacris did. Yeah. And then, you know, whatever. I used to have a demo when Mi Missy did the vocals on goodies. Mm. Ooh, she was, I would hear her voice. She was rapping it. It was dope. And I said, I'm going to keep this forever. And my damn computer crashed. I never took it off the drive. But, but so that was my problem because then I started looking at, like, Okay, we did Tip's first three or four albums, Jeezy's first three or four, five or six of Gucci's, all these different artists. Mm -hmm. So then I couldn't even, and I said, I, I'd always be, a lot of people call me when they do these documentaries or shows about Atlanta and they get left off. And they'd be like, man, they left me off. So I'm real conscious about that if I do something to make sure that I at least offer everybody to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. So if I was to put out a top 20 songs at Patchwork and leave off the old Let's Do It remix, that ain't cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So I just was like, so when we when they did the battle, we put out a uh we did a playlist of Gucci. If you can you can find it, it's called Show to Work on Spotify and Apple. It's 79 records that go back and forth. It start with Gucci Jeezy, Gucci Jeezy. And those are all some of the records. All of them. That ain't even all of them. We just we stopped at 79. 79 records that we worked on. So it's a playlist on Spotify and Apple Music. It's called Show to Work. It's underneath our patchwork thing, and it's 79 songs that they worked on at the studio. And so then that's why I was telling Oz, I said, well, maybe we're going to have to do years because even if we, we can't do decades, we can't do five years because we literally now, we still doing, we usually do it between 11 to 13 sessions a day right now. Mm. And so, you know, we, we start around 10 and finish around six every morning, seven days a week. So if you try to do a year, 13 times 365, yeah. we, you know what I mean? It's hard. So that's why I keep saying I can't really. So I'm like, are we going to do R&B? Are we going to do gospel? Are we going to do hip-hop, Southern, Man. East Coast? Like, how are we going to make a playlist? So that, that, that uh, Gucci Jeezy was our first time that we ever put something kind of out there because yeah. I didn't want to disrespect people. And I said, well, we got to figure it out. Yeah. Like, either you're going to start in 95 or what do you do? Do you pick the criteria? The album had to go platinum. Had to, we, I don't want to do that. That's crazy. Yeah, like, it's big. We did, uh, you know, we was doing, um, that's just my baby daddy. Oh, we did that record. Yeah. We recorded and mixed it. We did uh, My Boo. You know what I mean? We did Shorty Swing My Way. 
What? It's them records. That's why I be tell- we did the one with Michael Bivens, When Will I See You Smile Again, when he was singing over mm-hmm. the bass. We did that most of that bass album, Rhythm and Quad. So that's why I be telling people, I be telling my wife, and I was like, you was reaching to me and didn't even know it. <laughs> it's these records that you don't know that we did. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? And so way, you got to go way back to the booty shake. We was doing that stuff. Dang, that's crazy. Yo, man, it's just so much history. I just want to like go to lunch with you and just keep talking to you. Like, just because there's so many, there's so many, so many stories that we didn't tell. Like, you got we, we struggling, man. We, we we working on our documentary for our 25th anniversary. And right now, the cut down, I mean, I, I think our interview, we interviewed like 19 people and we talked to them for an hour. And so we had all this footage and then we got it cut down to four hours. And it's so many holes in it. Like, mm. I mean, it's just, it's too much. And so that's why I was like, you don't really know how to, I really don't know how to wrap, wrap around it. And so like, I was like, when you ask me to do it, cause normally I don't be going out doing, telling a whole bunch of stories. And I was like, really, you can't wait. If 25 years is hard, it's just going to get harder at 26, 29, For sure. 30 For sure. and more memories keep getting, re- get, get created and you can't really go back. And so it's hard for us, like on our timeline, we try to celebrate projects. So we like I think we just in one week, we put up Ludacris's album. It was 19 years old. Mm. And then a day or two later, I think we had a T.I. album up. And then a few days earlier, we had a Missy album. And then so every almost every day it's like an anniversary. And we try to and a lot of times they don't even be posting it. Like I'll put up the anniversary of this outcast or this Mm. and I'll tell Jason it's your birthday. Right. We'll, you know, whatever. So we trying to do it, and um, but we create more memories. You know what I mean? We we steadily create new stuff with some of these new people. And so I was telling Oz, I said, with the documentary, these old stories are cool, but we not dead. Yeah. And so you got to round it off and bring in the young Dolphs and the little yeah. babies and the, the other people that's come, the baby, the people that are new. Yeah. We have to tell that story because some of these people walk in the studio when we're doing tours of these high schools and they don't know who Outcast is. Yeah. It's like a museum. Dang. And then we get over to the Travis Scott. Oh, y'all did Travis Scott? <laughs> y'all did Kendrick Lamar? And we're like, we ain't dead. So it's, it's, a, it's a weird dynamic to pay respect. Like the other day, they, uh, YZ called me, thinking of a master plan, mm-hmm. and Wise Intelligent from Poor Righteous Teachers. You mm-hmm. remember them? Yeah. Yeah, they called me. He's like, Kurt, we at the studio. And I'm looking, I'm in Accra. I said, said Wise in, Intelligent, is that the studio? Yeah. So I never met him. And I'm looking at the traffic. On, I said, man, I can't come back. And I said, I said, look, man, I'm going to give you a discount on the rate if you take a picture in the studio. Oh, if you don't take a picture, I'm blah, blah, blah. <laughs> he fed he sent me the thing or whatever. And so when KRS was there, mm-hmm. I went in and talked to him. Wow. And I just told him, I said, out of respect for you, you just going to pay for the engineer. The studio is free. Good. Mm. And then they wanted to come back the next day and they was trying to get that deal. I said, hey, man, <laughs> I, I paid my that. respects to hip hop. Well, I'm going to give you the best rate for that sure. we got for what you're trying to do. Yeah. And I understand that. But like, so when those older people, I think a lot of times, sometimes they think like Cool Modi was there with KRS One. Oh, wow. And like when uh, Havoc them from Mob Deep, they be thinking people don't know them. Yeah. I'm like, nigga, we know you. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So it's cool to work on those projects like that. And it's, it's cool to see them people light up. Yeah, when people still recognize for them, sure, you know what I mean. Sure. Yeah, man, Kurt, I, I I appreciate you swinging by, man. Um, I, I I do like to make predictions on the podcast. What do you um What do you see yourself accomplishing, or where do you see yourself at in the next five to ten years, so that I can watch this five to ten years from today and say, Yo, Kurt said he was going to do it. So so for us, I'm I'm already I'm at twenty twenty six. 
2026, we'll be done paying for the studio. Mm. We won't owe any more money. Free and clear. Yeah, we we basically, I'm just uh, telling numbers, man, it costs, our mortgage is like $25,000 every month, man. Mm. We've been paying that forever. We probably pay like $110,000 in interest in every year. So we refinanced and put it on a 10-year note in 2018, but we pay an extra and so we're going to pay it off two years early. So 2026, I'll nice. say, going to be my year. So 2026, you know, right now we're blessed. We don't have any credit card debt. We don't have any leases. Mm. So at the end of every month, we always say we don't owe anybody. But if we can remove that mortgage, mm. that multiplies, man. If four months, 25000 is a hundred. Yeah. In eight months, that's two hundred, three hundred. Then we'll be moving into, we never really use the studio like these other people where they putting cars and houses underneath it. Mm. It's free and clear. No lines yeah. of credit or nothing. So then maybe we'll start expanding. My philosophy is like, I don't feel like I own it until it's paid off. Mm. So I, I paid off my house probably about five years ago. Paid off my wife's student loans about six months ago. Um, she owed about 62 on her house. I mm. flipped the house and paid 32 on it. So we owe wow. 30. So I'm trying to pay off her house. I got two condos in Atlantic Station. I want I want everything paid off and all the cars by 2026 to be free. Mm. And then that way my daughter, she's seven, she'll be 12. Now you just go around and collect the rent. And it'll and and if we win, it's gonna change. Just like we changed the music industry because we won and we figured it out and we shared the information. Mm -hmm. So as we've been doing these podcasts and podcast production, I done learned a lot. So we, we got a podcast, I already shot 24 episodes. It's called uh, an, an Origin Story with the ATL Greats. Oh. And we go through and our, our thought process, Bone Crusher's the host. And I'm like, Bone, everybody think of Atlanta history from LaFace on. Yeah. They don't realize it was a history here before LaFace. So we go before and mm -hmm. capture that. And then we working on our doc documentary. We got our uh, reality show. It went to a production company that oh, kind of wow. picked it up and they kind of shopping it around. And um, I'm thinking that with this documentary that we're doing now, once I figure that out, because nobody helps. Mm -hmm. you know, all the people that done done stuff, I done called them. They don't really help. Wow. But once we figure it out, we'll be able to share that information and do more. And, and sure. then it'll open it up because when we do it, we're not going to do it by taking nobody else's money. We're going to figure it out and do it and figure out how to do it. And then we'll be able to open up the doors for a whole bunch of other people. Wow. So that's... Like, you know, uh, that's what we on, man. You know, like owning it. And um, I had somebody, uh, I'll tell you this story. Uh, it's three people. Two of them I ain't going to tell you. They're mm -hmm. artists. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they was trying to buy the studio. And one ended up buying the studio, which is cool. The other one, he was like, damn, I'm glad you know your worth. But this other dude that ain't an artist, so I'm going to tell you, he used to write for the Atlanta Business Chronicle. He called me about a month ago, mm -hmm. asking me about buying the studio. And I told him, you know, somebody called me earlier in the year, was at $5 million, and I gave an analogy. I said, you know how you sitting on the couch and somebody ring your doorbell and you don't even get up? Mm -hmm. I said, that's how I did at the $5 million. And then I said, you know, at about $7 million, I might look on my ring cam and see mm -hmm. who at the door. <laughs> and so they was like, well, we, we think that's fair. And then I called my partner, and we agreed that, man, we – We've been running this race for 25 years, and we right at the finish line in five more years. We're going to finish it. So mm. we ain't selling, and, you know, even though the offer is a lot of money, it changed your life, but we want to own that real estate because yeah. if we own that, like even if you just own the building, and even if, lower and behold, we ever wanted to sell the business, well, that business will now be paying us $27,000 a yeah. month. So, you're like, we never get – and then all of that stuff around the studio, 
the price at Midtown is out of here. And then the, the last thing I'll say is I was uh, listening to a podcast and I heard a dude in New York talk about air rights. Mm. I'll tell you about yeah. that. You know, air rights. Yeah, are, yeah, yeah. The, the, the space. space above. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I get our parcel ID. I call down the city of Atlanta and I ask, what, what is our limits on our air rights? They pulled it up. It was like, oh, 1094 Hemp Hill, you in Midtown, unlimited. You can go up as high as you want to. And I said, oh, I got another question. How far can I go under the ground? They said, as far as you want. You can dig down as far as you want. And all these developments around us, they digging in the ground, building parking lots, and they going up. So I really know how much we worth. You know what I mean? Ooh. And then you look at us, what I tell people was funny. From our corner, it goes uh, Texaco, Burger King, McDonald's, Patchwork. But in a straight line is Atlanta. Across is Chick-fil-A, mm-hmm. Waffle House, Patchwork, and Antico. Mm-hmm. That's Atlanta. Every other state is out of here. So, you know, we're just sitting on it and um, just trying to finish the race, man. It's going to change the game for everybody. When well, we somebody do. come to you, Kurt, I got 10 for you. What are we doing? Nah. I want to. I mean, because we don't keep stuff as, as black people. Yeah. Like, that's why it was important to, like, I tell people, you know, a lot of us hit licks. I didn't hit a lick. We've been grinding for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like I had a whole bunch of money to just pay off my house. You know, I, I was able to do it. And then, you know, and then I didn't have a whole bunch of money to pay off my wife's damn college loans. We just we, we saved up and did it. And then now, you know, I'm buying and flipping and using that money to kind of pay off these other properties and stuff. So I never hit a lick. Mm-hmm. And so it's like once we get to that point, you know, we're going to be able to change the game, man. Yeah. We'll, man, I, we'll be financing your building. You ain't going to go to the bank. I'm going to oh, be like, no, no. you give me that interest. <laughs> yeah, that $80,000 a year on interest, we're going to buy that. You sure. do the loan, we'll use that as collateral. That changes the game. And that's why I be like, I be looking at like, I look at what we be paying the bank. I be about to call Ludacris and be like, man, you just need to finance this. Yeah. The collateral is worth way more than we own. Yeah. I would rather pay you monthly. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's like, I so I said, once we get in that position, That'll be the, the position that I'll play. It's a whole bunch of people that got small places. They don't need a whole bunch of money, but they can't get no loans. Yeah. So, you know, if the collateral's there and the business there, you do the financing, man. Make the money off the money. Mm-hmm. So I, that's why I was like a lot of times I see a lot of people, and um, and I be praying for people in the industry that, that have been in it as long as I am, and I just be like, man, you got a 20-year career. When it's over, I hope you got something to show for it. Yeah. Like, you hit licks throughout the career and got good looks, but we got a tangible building yeah. that ain't no debate about what it's worth and tangible equipment and a tangible 25 years worth of business books to put a value on it. And so I feel good about, uh, like I say, my goal is I just want to be able to go on the, sh- on the cruise. When my homeboys say we going out of town, there's two reasons people can't go, time or money. They don't have the time they can't go, they, they got a slave to their clock, or they don't have the money. So when everybody start tripping, when we 50, 55, I want to hit all of them trips. All of them. All of them, yeah. And I'm down to 10 to 2, so I got a lot of time. And then, you know, once I don't, like I keep saying, man, I don't count no money when I owe somebody. So once we get this bank, you know, out of my pocket or out of our pocket, mm-hmm. it's going to change the game. Then we, I mean, all of the stuff, the innovative stuff that we're doing, we'll be able to do more. And, and it's like I'm learning that people – that you think that are in a position that should be able to give you advice and help you, they really not in the position. And so it ain't really them that don't want to help you it's their pride of admitting that they really can't do nothing. Mm. Cause I'll be looking at all these people and I'm like, but you did a documentary 
and you did a podcast and you got advertising. So look, I want to do it. And then, you know, we tend to deal with people how you deal with people. So if I'm real helpful and we friends, I'm thinking I can just call one of my friends that already right. did it and be like, well, help me like I would help you. Or right. actually help me like I already did right. help you. <laughs> right. For Why sure. I got to struggle and try to figure this shit out? Because yeah. you don't want to admit that you really ain't the dude. And mm-hmm. so I'm learning that with people. And I'm like, well, you know what? We'll, we went through the process with the recording thing and we was able to change the culture and the industry. So on this media side with video and stuff mm-hmm. like that, I'm figuring that out as well. Solid, solid. Kurt, again, man, thank you so much, man. I want you to, uh, uh, I'm going to do a quick commercial real quick. Uh, just let everybody know how to find you and then close out with some words of wisdom for the people, okay? Um, this episode is sponsored, as always, by The Morning Meetup, themorningmeetup.com, the only, the only community that gathers every single day, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to 9 a.m., and we learn entrepreneurship. We've, we have Two, three hundred people on the call every single morning. Okay, there's a space for us to grow. You could just go to themorningmeetup.com, start your dollar trial for seven days. If you like us, stay. If not, you know you invested a dollar. So um, make sure you, um, you 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 join the program. Okay, so Kurt, man, please again, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for taking time out of your day, man. Um, you are not only is your your business and your building legendary. Um, but you are a legend yourself because you're creating something in that industry, right? Uh, like you're you're creating the blueprint. I look at somebody like AG, right? Legend, he created a blueprint. I think you're doing the same thing in terms of studio. So um, please let people know how they can f- find you, how they can connect with you, and then close us out. Um, so, you know, for me, the, the studio's information, are, are all our social media is at Patchwork or at Patchwork Studios. Uh, we put a gang of content on our YouTube page. It's just Patchwork Studios. And uh, my personal stuff is uh, at Patchwork Studios. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. And then, you know, like I always tell people, man, I, I'm just an adamant uh, believer in dreams. And I'm not a dream killer. So I'll be telling people, man, my word of advice is don't let anybody kill your dream. And your vision is your vision. And, and, and you see it clear as day. And just because somebody else doesn't see it doesn't mean it can't happen. So, you know, just keep dreaming and then put the work behind the dream and uh, and do what you do. What you was put here to do is, is, is be great and um, and just practice, man, you know, and read and be the source of the information, because a lot of people ain't going to help you. Mm, big facts. I love it. Listen, man, go out. Get you some social proof. Go build something and teach somebody else how to do it. OK, we are out of here, man. Peace.